Hey everyone, John Heilman here and welcome to Hell and High Water, my podcast for the recount about politics and culture on the edge of Armageddon with big ups to my pal Rizza, the presiding genius behind the sound of Wu-Tang Clan and the producer of our dope theme music. And I am here again this week with my longtime partner in crime, but new addition to the introductory section of the podcast, Grace Weinstein, the face, voice, spirit, heart and soul of the recount. Grace, how are you doing today? Hello, hello. I'm doing well. Beautiful day in New York City. How are you? I'm great. I'm going to give you an episode this week to lift. Well, I don't know about lift your spirits. It might depress you about the future of our great democracy. But this book by Jonathan Martin and Alexander Burns, two esteemed, excellent, top of the field political reporters, the New York Times, it's called This Will Not Pass. Trump, Biden, and the battle for America's future. I always enjoy when authors manage to whip up a frenzy about their book before it comes out. This book sort of the Amazon bestseller list weeks before it was even released. And boy, the noise that was created about this book, largely because they had these tapes. Lordy, Lordy, there are tapes. Kevin McCarthy saying stuff that he tried to deny, but there it was on tape. I know you're shocked to learn that Kevin McCarthy's a liar, right? Stupefied. You hear him panicked after January 6th of 2021 and like talking about how he's going to try to tell Trump to resign. And, and he's talking to Liz Cheney. They're friends back then, like allies. I mean, what was the thing that stood out to you most when you heard those tapes, the, like the questions you wanted to have answered as you listened to Kevin McCarthy? My question, and this is one that doesn't just apply to him, but applies to many people in the Republican Party as a whole, which is how are these people so oil covered in the way that nothing sticks to them? Nothing will take them down. We are seeing lies. We are seeing them being completely hypocritical, absolute two-faced liars, and nothing sticks. How is that possible? Well, you're going to get an answer to that. There are two answers from the two authors on this podcast today. And the other question that I had was, you can tell if you listen to the tapes really carefully that McCarthy is saying different things in his leadership calls than he's saying to the broader caucus calls. And you then find out that he's saying something totally different to Donald Trump. He's like, I'm going to tell Trump to resign. And then he's telling Trump, oh, you're great, sir. You're great. Even in private, there are multiple Kevin McCarthy faces, the faces of Janice in private. And I asked J-Mart about this on the podcast. What did Trump make of it? And and this is the story that he told, uh, which I found highly delightful. He said, you know, why does McCarthy go around saying he confronted you on January 6th and really came down on you? And Trump said, it never happened. So I said, well, why is he going around town saying that? And Trump just put a dagger at him. He said, inferiority complex. The thing that's great about the book, and you hear it in this episode of the podcast, is they go very deep, Martin and Burns do, on the relationships that we all want to know. Trump and McConnell, McConnell, like early in the morning of January the 7th, saying to J-Mart face-to-face, this is it, man, we can get rid of Trump. We can end this scourge. We can divorce ourselves from him permanently. And the book describes how McConnell ended up backing away from that. You get to hear an incredible piece of tape. They're talking about Lindsey Graham, who is calling the White House counsel, Pat Cipollone, and saying, I I am ready to invoke the 25th Amendment. And then those guys, Burns and Martin, are down at Mar-a-Lago having an interview with Trump. And Trump has Lindsey Graham so much on the string that on a phone call, he makes Lindsey Graham talk about what a great golfer he is on tape uh, (laughs) in front of the reporters. It's just totally stunning. How sleazy and toady and, and pathetic do you think Lindsey Graham is on a scale of one to 10? Broke the scale and broke the scale a number of years ago. The scale's been broken for half of a decade. It doesn't get 
more offensively shitty and cowardly than Lindsey Graham, I don't think. When you hear this episode of the podcast and hear this piece of audio, you will think worse of Lindsey Graham even than you do now. There's also stuff in this book about Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, and we talk about it on the podcast about their relationship and her struggles and what it means potentially for 2024 and, and what the relationship is like and how it might bear on whether Biden decides to run again or not. We also talk about some of the, the struggles that Biden has had and a series of, of memos that these guys break out by Biden's chief pollster, John Anzalone, that basically from very early last year was going, uh, inflation is a problem. Crime is a problem. The border is a problem. And this is what Alex Burns says about it on the podcast. Just give you a little taste of it here, Grace. I think it sort of demands a sort of deeper answer to the question of why didn't Joe Biden listen to this? You know, why were they so absorbed in the idea uh, that he could be LBJ or FDR that they sort of turned their gaze away from all these very, very serious gathering threats to his administration? Grace, I would describe you as a relatively liberal person. When you were Joe Biden, like kind of thinking he was going to be the next FDR or the next LBJ, did you think, boy, this is doomed? Or did you think, yeah, go Joe? I think it's difficult to say, considering I'm 26 years old and I see the constant ignoring of climate change, women's rights, gay rights, yeah. student debt relief, healthcare, mm -hmm. things like that. So to me, it was kind of always, oh, maybe this man will help us repair the country in slight ways that can get us back to a status quo that is continuously unsatisfying for somebody of my generation. So no, to say that he was ever going to be LBJ is kind of something that I would scoff at and continue to scoff at going into 2024. I thought you were going to say, I'm 26 years old. I don't know who LBJ is, uh, or let, let, alone, let, alone, let alone FDR. I never met him, hardly <laughs> know him, barely ever let him in my house. The last thing I'll say before we go is, of course, I'm going to talk about some news today. And, and if you want to hear what these guys think, the political implications of the possible, likely, apparently, very likely, total repeal of Roe v. Wade, you will want to hear that because they have sharp insights into what might have been driving the leak and what it might lead to and whether it will have an impact on the 2022 midterms and how Republicans might play it and how Democrats might play it. Grace Weinstein, it's great to see you. And I know what you're going to do as soon as we finish here is you're going to sit down and settle in like everybody else should and have a good, hard listen to what? What's it called? Helen Highwater. I am angry because we have reached the culmination of what Republicans have been fighting for, angling for, for decades now, and we are gonna fight back. I am angry because of who will pay the price for this. Angry, but committed. Understand this, understand this. I have seen the world where abortion is illegal. And we are not going back. Not ever. So we are here huh, with the interview I've been waiting for since the moment that these guys announced they were going to do a book. And I thought, these guys are going to write a great book. It's going to be great. I'm really looking forward to doing it. They'll come on the podcast. We'll talk about it. It'll be fantastic. My expectations are extraordinarily high for Jonathan Martin and Alexander Burns, two of the best political reporters in the country, both New York Times correspondents and uh, I believe in both cases, first time authors, right? First time for both of you with the book. Yep. Yes. I still had very high expectations and as high as my expectations are, and you know how high my expectations can be. Very high. You guys just like fucking soared over the bar. A month before pub, you guys are like driving the news cycle and changing history. So congratulations, first of all. An amazing launch, an amazing book. That was even better than I thought it was going to be. And I didn't think that was possible, but it's really incredible. You guys did an amazing job with this. So hats Great off. Job. 
Thanks a lot. I want to start and talk about some news of day before we get into the book, which is called This Will Not Pass, Trump, Biden, and the Battle for America's Future. Anybody who cares about politics already knows about this book because you guys have been wall to wall, as I said before, on cable for the last, I don't know, three weeks, four weeks almost. But last week was such a big week in terms of history in some ways with the leaked Supreme Court draft opinion. There are at least a couple of news of day stories I want to talk about with you because you're both, you know, as good as they come on this stuff. So tell me both of you, I mean, Alexander, you can start first, but Jen, you guys can alternate on this one question. How big is this story? Like, have you seen anything as big as this in your career? I'm older than both of you guys. I struggle to think of a a genuine, like bigger thing, the combination of the scoop that's involved and then the impact of it and the way that people reacted to it. There's not that many things that rival it, I don't think. No, I think certainly in terms of judicial decision type news, I've not covered anything remotely close to this. I think you're sort of getting into uh, the category of global economic collapse or a war and peace in order to find something that reverberates so strongly in our politics so, so quickly. And I truly cannot remember another earthquake of this magnitude driven by a single scoop by our former colleagues at Politico. Certainly for my entire career as a reporter, I think for your entire career as a reporter, John, there have been these sort of big trophy goals of the conservative legal movement for a really, really long time, overturning Roe being arguably first and foremost among them. But it's always seemed you know, slightly over the horizon. And we'll see if the court actually follows that draft opinion from Justice Alito. But if it does, man, that is not over the horizon, right? That is right in front of our faces. And Jay Mart, I, you know, we see the late night shows do interviews with people on the street to make fun of them about how little they know about America. You know, most right. of them can't name their own congressman. They can't name the 50 states. Everybody in America knows Roe v. Wade. Brown v. Board and Roe v. Wade are the two most famous judicial decisions in our lifetimes and the only right. ones that most people can name and actually kind of know what they're about. So it just has that kind of cultural right. resonance beyond, you know, Washington, D.C. It's the thing where like everybody in the country was like, holy fuck. Or going, yay. The closest comparison that I can think of is COVID, right? Just yeah, a right. earthquake of an event that shapes pretty much everybody's life in some way, shape, or form. And it's also, John, importantly, something, as you alluded to, that breaks through. You know, so many of the political stories that we cover, you know, millions of Americans either aren't interested or haven't even heard of them, frankly. And I right. think this is different that it really penetrates far and wide you know, in the country and sort of gets everybody perked up and engaged. And so I think because of that, the timing of it could you know, have an impact on the midterms. It's not totally clear to me yet what that's going to be. I mean, I think it's still important to see what the actual opinion is yeah. in June before making that sort of assumption. But I mean, obviously, this is primed to have some impact on the election. And the least important elements of this, in order of magnitude, like the impact on people's lives, the most important, the political impact is the second most important. The third most important may be like, how did this happen? Why did it happen? What was the leak about? And the least important is the thing I just want to get out of the way. Is there a bigger story you've ever seen? I mean, we're practitioners of this craft. You guys have broken a shit ton of news in this book, and I've broken a couple pieces of news in my life. The coverage of Watergate obviously was huge, but it was not one story that had this kind of cataclysmic effect or deep impact. Can you think of a single scoop? That has made your eyes pop out more. Also a scoop that like, I bet all three of us thought was unobtainable previously. I mean, it was just kind of always considered a thing that, oh, you're never going to get this. You could talk to clerks. You can get some behind the scenes of the Supreme Court, but you're not going to get an opinion. Assigned yeah. opinion by five justices like, in advance like on, a, on a land by case. Yeah, right. It's like scooping the the, uh, the next pope, the next pope, <laughs> or like 
the coup against the current pope or something extraordinary right. like that, yeah. right? And which, by the way, in some respects, <laughs> would actually be more realistic given the Vatican press corps um, <laughs> yes. than this. So. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of amazing. Hats off, Josh Gerstein, incredible. Um, I want to play another piece of sound, though, just yeah. to get into a little bit of how the different parties reacted to it and what it kind of portends for the politics. So here's Joe Biden last week at a press conference trying to contextualize this in a way with that Elizabeth Warren clip, which is obviously more angry. But Biden and Warren are kind of of a piece here about what Democrats want to say about this, that it's not just bad in and of itself, but it's about more than even abortion. This is about a lot more than abortion. This reminds me of the debate with Robert Bork. We had a debate about uh, Griswold versus Connecticut. There'd been a law saying a married couple could not purchase birth control in the privacy of their own bedroom and use it. Well, that got struck down. Griswold was thought to be a bad decision by Bork, and my guess is the guy's on the Supreme Court now. What happens if you have a state change the law saying that, that, that children who are LGBTQ can't be in classrooms with other children? Is that legit under the way the decision is written? What are the next things that are going to be attacked? So, Burns, that's what Democrats were saying all last week, which was if you take Alito's reasoning and it really is the majority rationale for striking down Roe entirely, Griswold is at stake. But gay marriage is at stake. Miscegenation is at stake. There are a lot of things that there's no right to privacy at the basis of a lot of what we've considered cultural rights and norms are at stake. Is that a winning political argument? Is that an argument Democrats can be like, there's a majority of people in America who want abortion to remain legal, but there are a lot of these other cultural issues they're losing on. And can they make this a way to kind of actually get some larger political thing out of just rather than just there are suburban women who really care about abortion rights, which is big enough, but it seems like they're aiming for more here. You know, I think they are. And to be honest, John, I find this understandable a response from a sort of emotional level and a, a sort of coalition building level. From a purely political level, I do find it a little bit puzzling because abortion rights on its own is a titanic social and legal issue. And the speed with which a lot of Democrats have moved past talking about abortion rights as such to talking about abortion rights as a gateway into a whole other set of civil rights has just kind of surprised me because abortion is such a foundational social and civil rights issue for the party and, you know, for the last generation or so for the country. Look, I think the risk here for Democrats is that, yes, if that draft opinion that we have all read now is the final decision, then yeah, I think you have real reason to be worried about a whole lot of other longstanding court precedents related to the right to privacy. If that's not the final decision and the court finds a way to distinguish abortion as an issue from a larger set of privacy considerations, that it's actually not that hard as a policymaking matter to explain why a gay marriage or interracial marriage might be seen as different from the right to medically terminate a pregnancy, if that's where the court ends up, then Democrats could find themselves having invested a whole lot of energy in a slippery slope argument that then doesn't seem quite so immediate. And again, the part that is just puzzling to me, you mentioned suburban women. It's suburban women, it's young women, sure. it's, it's women, women of color in cities and in rural areas for whom abortion rights is a major, major foundational issue and I do wonder for some of these Democrats whether they're just sort of out of practice in talking about yeah. the sort of details of abortion rights that they're so quickly moving on to other subjects. And also, I would say to add to that list, you know, some men who take their responsibilities of paternity seriously also have some investment in this, in addition to all those female groups. And Jonathan, I pick up the thing Burns just said. For most of my career, 
Bill Clinton's formulation of safe, legal, and rare was an incredibly powerful political notion. And people often forget that rare was part of it. And rare was an important part of the messaging of what Clinton wanted to say. Let's try to reduce unwanted pregnancies and all of that stuff that appealed to cultural conservatives and said, but we still have to keep safe and legal in there. Because Roe was considered settled law and because Democrats had that messaging, which for so long worked for them, it does seem as though the muscles are a little out of shape. They didn't get lazy exactly, but it was easy to be like, this is not going anywhere fundamentally. We're going to fight right. on the margins. The interest group's going to raise a lot of money. It's going to matter a lot in judicial politics. But in yeah. terms of the ballot box, it doesn't matter very much. The big question's always been, what would happen to our politics if Roe were actually repealed? Well, now we're about to maybe see that. What do you think? I mean, I'm not actually going to speculate too much, but there are a lot of people who are very skeptical that even a full-scale re- repeal of Roe would drive a surge of turnout in the midterm elections, for instance, that would benefit Democrats. Do you think that they're right to be skeptical, or do you think that there could be something very big afoot here? Well, two things. First, on the safe, legal, and rare formulation, I think that for a lot of progressives, that they weren't thrilled about the rare part of that formulation, yeah. and they didn't want to sort of do anything that would stigmatize the procedure. Yeah. And I think that was a Clinton-era formulation, and uh, a lot of folks on the left wanted to leave it there. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and I think everybody knows what I mean by that. I think you're right that there is a certain level of atrophy. I mean, you saw the Warren clip, and she may emerge as the messenger here, or at least the party's best messenger. There's just not a lot of obvious people who can sort of lead this charge for Democrats. I mean, Biden's been ambivalent about the issue for a long time, and obviously, just generally as a messenger, you heard that clip, and he's talking about Bork and Griswold, which, again, like, we know what that means, but... That's not exactly a rallying cry for a 23-year-old kid right out of college who wouldn't know, you know, Robert Bork from Robert Taft. I want to see what this actual opinion looks like in June. And I think if they do a wholesale repeal of Roe, yeah, I think that could really electrify a lot of voters who suddenly wake up and say, holy shit, they're actually going to outlaw abortion in America? This is real? I think if there's that realization, it could be, you know, enormously powerful for Democrats. But... I'm just not sure that we're, we're there quite yet based upon this one fantastic, but just one one leaked draft. We'll talk about a character very important in the book that you guys wrote in the- uh, Yeah, the book. Yes, man, you're going to get a lot of time on this book. Don't get, Let's go, don't get stressed about it. But the character is very important. I'm not getting there yet, though. The character is oh, very important God. to this will not pass. You got me excited. I know. You're easily excitable. Is Mitch McConnell, who got up on television last week and talked about the Roe issue in a different way. So here's Mitch McConnell. Let's listen to him talk about the leak from SCOTUS. And this was what Republicans did all last week. And I don't totally understand it. So you guys are going to help me decode it. Here's Mitch McConnell. Democrats say that the prospect of Roe being overturned and some of the more restrictive trigger laws coming into effect without exemptions for rape and incest will shock the public and motivate voters in November. Well, that's not the story for today. The story for the day is what I just said. You need, it seems to me, excuse the lecture, uh, to concentrate on what the news is today. Not a leaked draft, but the fact that the draft was leaked. Okay, so first of all, Mitch McConnell running your assignment desk is just fucking crazy. The premise of it's fucking crazy. I mean, the leak is obviously super interesting and we're all interested in it, but like that's the news of day, the day after that we learned that the Supreme Court's about to repeal. Yeah, he's reading stage room. directions too. It's, it's, I mean, you're, like, you know, <laughs> that's crazy. So You're but, saying out loud, yeah. Alex, why is that? Republicans did this all week. And for a number of reasons, it seems strange to me. You would think if they wanted this for all this time, why not be triumphal about it and claim the victory? Or the impending victory. And the second thing about it is, you know, as many people pointed out, it's not clear that a left-wing person on the court leaked it. I can make an equally plausible case. I can make a case that an angry 
progressive clerk did this because he was just pissed, not because he thought it would affect anything. He was just pissed, wanted to let the country know. I can imagine a strategic reason from the left, not a very sound one, but that I can imagine one. And I can certainly imagine a strategic reason for someone from the right. Why is it that conservatives seized so much on the certainty that this was a left winger and that this was the talking point they wanted to bang on all week long rather than talking about an issue that they clearly think they're right about in moral terms, political terms, and now potentially legal terms? Look, I mean, first of all, as we all know, the sort of guessing game around leaks is so often a total fool's errand, yeah. right? Yeah. There's so infrequently does the big, big uh, explosive leak come in the linear fashion from the likeliest suspect to the nearest reporter. That's just sort of a fantasy. I have no idea who leaked this opinion. You always I, thought Mark Felt was deep throat, right? You're like, it's definitely Mark Felt. Well, always from like day all one. Along, yeah, right? Yeah, Obviously, right. Okay, yeah, we, sure. all, we all knew that. <laughs> we yeah. all knew that one. But, you know, look, this indicates the underlying political discomfort that Republicans have with a world where they can't just rail against a Supreme Court decision that they think is bad, but they have to talk about what comes next after that. That, you know, Roe has been a huge political gift to Republicans in so many elections because they're allowed to take the sort of finely calibrated position on, you know, what new restrictions should be placed on the procedure, parental consent, cutoffs in terms of late term abortion, you know, stuff that the Supreme Court might allow without overturning Roe and opening the whole conversation to should women ever have the right to terminate a pregnancy. And that's obviously a much, much less politically comfortable conversation for Republicans to have. And I will just say, John, I do think this is where a lot of folks in the Republican Party are kind of going to one way or another show their true colors about what they truly, truly believe uh, about the definition of life and when it begins. That if you are a true believer and you think that life begins at conception and that abortion is literally murder, then that Alito opinion is the best thing that has happened in your lifetime. And you are rooting as hard as possible for the court to stamp and release exactly that. And if your reaction is to say, let's talk about the process (laughs) whereby that draft made it into the public view, then maybe you have a somewhat different set of priorities and maybe a somewhat more ambivalent view of abortion and the definition of life. Are you trying to say that maybe they liked having the issue more than they liked having the potential victory? Yeah, I've heard yeah. from time to time that yeah. people in politics do that, uh, yeah. rather have the issue to run on than yeah. the issue to actually deal with. But yeah, I mean, but honestly, seldom yeah. have we seen it so vividly illustrated as we have in the last few days. It's like the dog caught the car, yeah. bit the bumper, and then like after biting the bumper, turn around the other direction and ran like hell. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, obviously an enormous issue and we'll see what transpires in June. I can't help but think that John Roberts, because of his profound private and sometimes public concern about the legitimacy of the court, is doing whatever is possible. I'm not saying he's going to be able to get it done, but you know that Roberts understands that a full-scale repeal of Roe, and again, I say this not as a partisan in some way, although I think abortion should be legal, It's just the radicalism of departing from 50 years of established precedent and all the settled expectations in the country. It's just not a conservative way to do legal reasoning. And I think that, you know, radicalism from the left or the right on the court does nothing good for the court. I think Robert sees that, right? And I think he's got to be the most panicked man in America in some ways right now because he understands the court already was in ill repute with a lot of the country. And this just makes it worse. 
Jonathan, tell me about J.D. Vance's win in Ohio. I should say J.D. Mandel, sure. who Donald Trump, on the day before, he's like, you know, God, I'm going to pull all my chips on the so, table here. John, as you may have heard, Alex and I have a book coming out called This Will Not Pass. And that title yeah. can mean a yeah. lot of different things to yeah. different people. It's particularly vivid. And I think it applies to this week's news events equally. Yeah. If you think about both the Roe leak and also J.D. Vance's victory yeah. in Ohio, I think the combination of those two events at least should end whatever fantasy there was among people who thought after Donald Trump is back at Mar-a-Lago and out of the White House, we'll be back to normal. The country will return to this sort of pre-Trump era, less polarized, less red and blue, less division, and it'll be hunky-dory. And I think both of those events suggest that like our book title is pretty apt, that this has not passed. This is an ongoing clash. The divisions in this country are as sort of canyon deep as they've ever been. And I think the fact that Donald Trump is still able to engineer a victory in a Senate race after he's been defeated tells you a lot about his clout. And I think it sends a message to people in the Republican Party who thought, or hoped at least, that he was a spent force. Now, let's be honest, he didn't get Vance to 70% of the vote. This is a plurality victory in a multi-candidate field. But a win's a win, and let's be honest, Vance was not going to win until Trump came in the race. Right. So that's, I think, engineered a victory, maybe a little bit overstated. But look, I thought, A... I've mentioned the book title many times, and we already have mentioned it a couple times, but of course it is. This will not pass. And it is an app title for our politics right now. We'll get deeper into it in a second. But I do want to just dwell on this one question. Alex, even if you were not deluded the way that you know, the little straw man that Jonathan set up there, which is like, well, you know, Donald Trump went back to Mar-a-Lago, he'd be gone. Well, we knew by this point that he wasn't gone and he still had a huge effect in the party and on the country. But there were a lot of people who were like, I don't know, does he still have the juice in some of these primaries? It's not clear he has it in Georgia, where David Perdue's getting his ass kicked by Governor Kemp in that primary, and Donald Trump cares as much about that state as any state in the country right now. He's obsessed with Georgia, and he doesn't seem to be getting much done there for Purdue. But in this case, it looked like he gave a bump to Vance. And I think the question is sort of how much credit do you give? He definitely has bragging rights. You know, he went out and said it, although he tried to kind of back away from it the day before. And and so I like them all. How big a, a bragging right does Trump have? It'll take the biggest one possible, but what do you think he actually deserve? Look, I think in terms of Ohio, he deserves actually quite a bit of credit for that result. Vance was on track to finish in third or uh, maybe second place before the endorsement. But again, I think it's a matter of keeping this stuff in proportion that, you know, back in 2018, you saw candidates go from nowhere to winning based on Donald Trump's endorsement. This time you had a candidate go from the high teens to the low 30s based on Trump's endorsement. That's not nothing. But Vance already had a massive independent expenditure effort on his behalf, funded by Peter Thiel. He's obviously a big figure in the national and state media for some time. It's not the sort of plucking some rando from total obscurity and anointing them as the next U.S. senator from Ohio the way Trump has tried to do in other places. I think you're right to allude to Georgia. There are a couple other primaries coming up in places like Nebraska and Pennsylvania, where Trump has made arguably riskier bets than the one he made in Ohio. And look, you try to uh, take the aggregate picture that emerges from primary season. I think Donald Trump's going to be bragging about uh, J.D. Vance in 15 years if if, if they're all still around. But, you know, we're going to get probably some pretty significant reality checks just in the next couple of weeks. So the last topic before we go deep into this will not pass, 
you just teed up is the Pennsylvania show. I want to play two pieces of sound and then talk about Pennsylvania because super fascinating. Again, two of the most iconic states now after after 2020, Georgia, Pennsylvania, the states where all that stuff happened and where you were waiting for results till the very end. And, you know, Trump's playing big here. I want to play first a little mashup from the first Pennsylvania Republican Senate debate in which it speaks directly to the book in some ways, as Jonathan just pointed out, and to Jonathan's point, which was, Okay, well, you know, he didn't get J.D. Vance to 70 percent, but all the Ohio Senate candidates were like racing into Trump's arms. They all basically were just trying to out Trump out be more Trumpy than the other one. The same thing's happening in Pennsylvania, as you can hear from this mashup from the Pennsylvania's first Republican Senate debate back on April 25th in Pennsylvania. Here are a bunch of candidates talking like Trump. He went groveling to President Trump. President Trump saw right through him, did not endorse him, and then he endorsed me. Everything President Trump put in place worked. The reason Mehmet keeps talking about President Trump's endorsement is because he can't run on his own positions. President Trump won Pennsylvania. President Trump endorsed being President Trump was very clear, I'm America first. I'm the only person in this race that was appointed by President Trump. What President Trump did is he put his finger on the fact President Trump did was respect people who had been othered, forgotten, canceled. President Trump coined the word MAGA. I have discussed with President Trump. And just like President Trump, that experience is going to make me a better senator. It's like a lot of Trump talk there from those folks. Dr. Oz there boasting. I, a candidate who I don't know there, I like to, my favorite thing is President Trump coined the word MAGA, which apparently is like just a boast in and of itself. Now here's President Trump on Friday night at a rally in Pennsylvania. This is the person who they all want to be behind them that they invoke constantly in this religious sort of way. Pennsylvania is the commonwealth where our founding fathers declared American energy independence. Think of that. You were the first ones many, many, many Years ago, who would think where we are? We had it done a year and a half ago, and today we're begging for energy. We're begging enemies for energy. Jay Marta, it's a cheap shot. It's so easy at this point, but the guy just showed up in Pennsylvania. Like, yeah, that's apparently the most powerful person, not only Republican Party, yeah. but apparently in Pennsylvania, Republican politics, a guy who thinks that Pennsylvania is the Commonwealth where our founding fathers declared American energy independence. What date was that again in your history well, books? Well, look, if you guys have read the Walter Isaacson biography of Ben Franklin, but the chapter on Franklin and fracking is superb. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. It, 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 yeah. it really goes deep. Um, yeah. You just thought, you know, he was figuring out electricity with the lightning storm. And now he was figuring it all out on the fracking front too, man. He also thinks apparently that if you get elected to the Senate from Pennsylvania, that your wife becomes the first lady of Pennsylvania, which I thought was kind of a cool thing at that rally. I mean, that would be news to Mrs. Tom Wolf. Yes, for sure. I, I was certainly the uh, case. What do you think about the Pennsylvania race? You know, there's a Trump obviously that reads the cue cards and the Trump that obviously is speaking from the hip. I think we know which is which pretty clearly here by now. Yeah. I think it's less clear cut than Ohio, John. I mean, I think McCormick has got a lot of money and has got a biography that obviously is a little bit more traditional for much of Pennsylvania. And this is, I think, a better test of just, you know, can Trump wire a victory for somebody who is not a natural fit for this state? I mean, obviously, celebrity counts for a lot these days, but so does money and so does bio. And so I think this is, in some ways, a more fascinating test of whether or not Trump can sort of install people who are really in his mold, which is just to say sort of TV celebrities with not terribly defined ideological views. 
The most interesting thing about the McCormick campaign to me, other than the fact that, you know, Dina Powell is so deeply involved in it, is just that they built this campaign like a spaceship to land on planet Trump. Everything about it was like, okay, let's get all the Trumpiest people we can get. Oh, Stephen Miller, hoping like everybody come on board and we're going to go to Mar-a-Lago and show you, hey, look at all the people who are love you, all your acolytes, the people you like best. Please, obviously you will endorse us. And he's like, no, I like we, the guy. Yeah, I like the guy on TV better. This, I like the I guy on TV better. I wonder, John, if that, if like Trump sort of got the joke, right? Yeah. I mean, if Trump sort of figured out he's doing all of this to stroke me and you know maybe it's not totally authentic you well know? he said he said as much in pennsylvania right that that same rally that you know this guy goes out and hires anyone who is within 200 miles of me right just mocking him yeah. or pandering to trump in that way i do think he's wise to it but i think john's point about oz as an ideological cipher uh, is so <laughs> crucial here because when you look at him who knows what his authentic views are on basically anything. anything. And when you look at uh, J.D. Vance, his big trophy win in Ohio, this is a guy who went from outspoken, even strident, a never-Trump voice in 2016 to full-on MAGA convert in 2022. So you see Trump building this sort of menagerie yeah. of people who are trying to follow his model in one way or another. But what does it add up to for the Republican Party in terms of what it's going to stand for, that if you end up with a Senate majority with these guys as the balance of power. No, that's what's so interesting. What does it mean for the final two years of the Biden presidency, at least the first term of the Biden presidency, if that's the set of folks on the other side of the table you're negotiating with? And by the way, you know what's so interesting, I think, about all this, too, is it shows how politics has so changed in the Trump era. Because if you think about all these races collectively, at the risk of going into the weeds, the Ted Cruz-backed candidates are probably more agreeable to Mitch McConnell than like <laughs> a lot of the other candidates, right? Yeah. A lot yeah. of these candidates where Ted Cruz has played right. would be much better for McConnell than the kind of like Josh Hawley slash Donald Trump endorsed candidates. Certainly in places like Ohio, like Pennsylvania, potentially in Arizona with Blake Masters. I mean, those are not people, J.D. Vance, Mehmet Oz, and Blake Masters, who like are going to be easily housebroken in, in Mitch McConnell's Senate. As you guys both know, when, when the Trump endorsement went to Dr. Oz, that was an immediate McCormick negative ad. And the ad had Oz in video saying nice things about the Clintons, dancing with Michelle Obama, right. praising Tony Fauci. It was like every bad possible thing, every liberal... <laughs> terrible thing that that every conservative every maga person hates most if he can survive that i mean genuinely the guy has, has had a lot of liberal positions and done a lot of liberal shit over the course of his career and there's video of it all and if he can survive that and become the nominee just because of donald trump's endorsement it will be the ultimate proof of you know something we already know but you know donald trump still has a lot of influence and sway and power over the gop Okay, so it's time to finally get to the thing, the moment you've all been waiting for, the thing that J-Mart has been agitating for since we began the recording here today. I want to get directly to the book, This Will Not Pass, Trump, Biden, and the Battle for America's Future by Jonathan Martin and Alexander Burns. But we're going to take a quick break before we do that. We'll be right back with more of these two New York Timesmen on Hell and High Water. Welcome back to Hell and I Water. 
we'll now transition to the book, the fantastic book. Have I mentioned how great I love this book? I this you guys, will not pass. You guys available missed, today. Please buy it. You guys missed the part at the beginning where I said it was the second best book I've ever read after the Bible. But Jonathan was like asleep in that part, so he wants me to praise it more. The book is great. This will not pass by Jonathan Martin and Alexander Burns. Or actually, I should turn it around. Alphabetical Alexander Burns, Jonathan Martin. So we're going to talk about the Republican piece because we're in that already right now. And just to kick things off, a little White House correspondence dinner sound from Joe Biden. Very short little piece of sound, but it really kind of says everything you need to know about this will not pass in some ways and its impact. Because when you guys get into a presidential monologue, that's how you know you've made it. Here comes Joe Biden. I'm not really here to roast the GOP. That's not my style. Besides, there's nothing I can say about the GOP that Kevin McCarthy hasn't already put on tape. I love the way you framed this at the outset. Jay Martin, one of your interviews where you were like, everybody for years has been saying Republicans hate Trump behind the scenes and they say other stuff publicly. You want to hear what it really sounds like? Here's what it sounds like. Here's the yeah. tape. Just talk about that a little bit. I mean, obviously, the McCarthy tapes, as we'll call them now, like the basement tapes by the band or something, they've been studied by Talmudic scholars and, and discussed on cable news ad infinitum. The one thing I've learned in doing books is that there's a repetitive quality of these interviews, but when you do them enough, you start to understand them in a slightly different way than even you thought you did when the book came out because people yeah. ask a lot of the same questions and some different ones. And you start to kind of like over time and repetition, you start to get a little bit deeper insight into what really the thing is about. How do you think about that right now? You've talked about the McCarthy tapes over and over again yeah. and what they represent. Try to do right now the best distillation of what you think it means. Not like the individual news, like yeah. he said this, he said that, which is what cable cares about. Sure. What does it mean? I mean, I think... You touched on this. I mean, I think a big effort that was part of this book, part of this project, was to capture in both parties what the private reality is and how it contrasts with the sort of public portrayal, which obviously are two very different things. And we want to shine a light on the private reality. And I think we do a service to readers, to obviously voters, and hopefully to history by capturing in this extraordinary political moment, 2020 and 21 what political leaders were thinking and doing privately and sort of what that meant and the contrast with their public comments and actions. And I think certainly with the McCarthy case, you see just how different it was. John, I also think of something that one of our mentors like to tell us, John Harris, the editor at Politico, he always liked to say, what's the story that you would tell your friends or your colleagues at the end of the day at the bar that you saw that day on the campaign trail? Because like that's what you should be putting in your copy. That should be what you tell the readers. And Alex and I have had this sort of like 15-year-long conversation about American politics, and I think we worked for news organizations that obviously had natural constraints. Uh, and I, this was our chance to actually like put a lot of what we wanted to say about this moment, about these actors, in print. And we, frankly, had the material based on our reporting to do it. Burns, there's a few really big characters who are really important to the future of the Republican Party who are also massive characters in the book. And one of them we already mentioned before is McConnell. What Jonathan just said is, I think, true. We all tell often the best anecdotes, the shit we saw. We also take the high order bit. We kind of go, people say, what's McConnell really like? What does he really think of Trump? That's what your family at your Thanksgiving, that's what people ask you. They, totally. they, don't, they even care. They want to hear one funny anecdote, but they also want to know like the core truth about it. So describe what you guys learned about the McConnell-Trump minuet, and where it stood in 2020, in the immediate hours after the insurrection in 2021, and today. Sure. You know, John, I think that the two Republican congressional leaders are represented really different challenges and different reporting opportunities yeah. for us. You know, Kevin McCarthy is somebody who, you know, your average person in the United States has never heard of. 
uh, and even your relatively educated news consumer probably knows like a little bit about, right? The House Minority Leader historically is not an important position, doesn't have uh, any actual power. McConnell is somebody, you know, the challenge with him is he's somebody who people know a lot about, or at least they think they know a lot about him. And so how do you tell them something uh, that they don't already know? And one of the big overarching stories of the Trump presidency was McConnell is this enabler of Trump, that's accurate, that he's somewhat uncomfortable with Trump, that's also accurate, that he's not close with Trump, again, accurate. So how can you build on that picture and develop it further. I think what we really do show in the book is that as sort of awkward as you think that relationship was, it was much more awkward than that. And as chilly as the relationship was, it was actually downright frosty and at this point, totally frozen. And Mm. there's a lot of skepticism from our readers in the center, center left, that McConnell was ever genuinely tempted to break with Trump on and after January 6th. And I think what we show in the book uh, pretty conclusively uh, is that he really was very, very, very tempted that on the night of January 6th, he told Jonathan, this guy has totally discredited himself. He's put a, a gun to his own head and pulled the trigger. And then just five days later, he tells a couple uh, of his close aides that the Democrats are going to take care of this son of a bitch for us, meaning through the impeachment process. And he predicts that Trump will be convicted and barred from running for office again. That's pretty staggering stuff for a guy who has had this, again, frosty, arm's length, but very, very productive transactional political relationship with Trump over the last four years. So the fact that he gets that far, but then ultimately can't go all the way, can't bring himself to say, I'm going to throw caution to the winds, accept up uh, potential electoral consequences for breaking with Trump, for engaging in open war with the most popular figure in my party. That also tells you something about Mitch McConnell and how much at the end of the day, the raw electoral math and the raw power politics matters more even than his outrage after January 6th. And Jonathan, you're, as your partner just said, you're there with McConnell. I mean, that sure. incredible place to have been on January 6th. I mean, obviously you worked for the access of it, but you're right place, right time. And like the worst luck and the best luck at the same time, obviously the worst luck for the country that we had a, a ride of the Capitol. But you're there and you're talking to McConnell. There's a couple things you witness. One of them is the thing that Burns just talked about. The main thing I want to ask you about that is in that moment, not what did McConnell say, because you've reported that, you know, yeah. and, and Burns just talked about it. What was McConnell like in that moment? Was there emotion? Did he seem scared? Did he seem energized? Did he seem both? The number of times we've seen genuine emotion from Mitch McConnell on a public stage has been close to zero. I can't think of a time where I ever thought there was like, he's not hard on his sleeve kind of guy, quite the opposite. What was he like that early morning? No, it's a great question. He was definitely thinking ahead and he was already gaming out in his mind the political implications for this. And he says it out loud that, this guy has discredited himself. He put a gun to his head and pulled the trigger. So he's thinking, oh, I finally ridded myself of this pain in the ass. I I sort of like maximized him for all it was worth. I got three Supreme Court justices, a massive tax cut passed, and now we can move on. And I don't have to worry about, you know, wild ass tweets at one in the morning about any number of topics. Thank goodness. So I think that was his mindset looking forward. But I was, you know, doing my sort of like best Barbara Walters impression, I guess. I was asking him how he felt, which is like not a question I've asked Mitch McConnell quite, you know, uh, very often in my, in my career, trying to like draw him out and like get to his emotions. Trying to um, get him to cry? You're trying to like, I, I'm going to make this motherfucker on. cry. I swear to yeah, God, I'm going to make him and, cry. Um, he finally realized what I was doing after the second or third time I asked him. And he, and he said back to me, he said, you asked how I feel. 
so he feels exhilarated, right? Right. And he felt he felt liberated. Is I is actually a word I would use. He felt liberated. I sort of maximized this guy. I enabled him, but I also maximized him for my own purposes politically. Right. And now we can, we can all move ahead. I think there was a feeling even of relief mixed with obviously horror at what he had seen that day in the Capitol and the previous day in Georgia where he lost his treasured majority. So the back-to-back impact of those two days, I, I think, is really important to keep in mind for the context. Just pause on that for a second, right? But we all know that in private and in public, Republicans and Democrats, there are people on the House side and on the Senate side who were scared, scared for their lives, thought they might die, or yeah. they were scared going forward. Even once it was clear they weren't going to die that day, they were really rattled and they were thinking about, will there be more violence tomorrow? Will there be more yes. violence next week? There's still members of Congress who are scared yeah. on a pretty regular basis. Oh, yeah. and, you're, and you're basically saying that, and again, I'm not saying this in a critical tone. I'm just trying to be really clear about the contrast. Yeah. Like McConnell was so focused with his political lizard brain, which is a very sophisticated lizard, as sophisticated yeah. a political thinker as we've seen. He was exhilarated. To the extent he portrayed emotion, it was exhilaration. Obviously, he felt bad about what happened that day, but yes. he was already basically seeing energized by the prospect of a political win for him in this yes. with respect to Trump going. Not like rattled and like, I got to go home and hide my head, but it was like, we got to get moving and get Trump the fuck out of here if we can. Yeah. He's thinking of the like immediate political implications, both in the weeks ahead, but also in the months ahead, going into the midterms in, in 2022, and, and thinking this obviously gives us uh, a chance to kind of move beyond Trump. But you're right, though, that, like a lot of the members of Congress, John, that we talked to, and you know, Alex can can talk more about this, were and still are, you know, really, really rattled by what happened that day. And you know, in those Kevin McCarthy tapes that we've put out, McCarthy, you can hear the, in his voice the panic that his own members are going to cause more bloodshed yes. in the following days. Yes. So that was a very real concern. I'm going to play this McCarthy tape because some of them have gotten so much coverage and they're incredible. I mean, all of them are incredible. But this one is where McCarthy is talking. I think this is January 10th. And he's talking about Matt Gates, which kind of is representative of the thing you're talking about, Jonathan, about how McCarthy was looking at some of his own colleagues and the threat they represented. I just got something sent now about Newsmax, something Matt Gates said, where he's calling people's names out, saying an anti-Trump in this type of uh, atmosphere, um, and some of the other places. This is this is serious stuff people are doing that has to stop. So I'm calling Gates. I'm explaining to him. I don't know how much to say, but I'm going to have some other people call him too. But the nature of what, if I'm getting briefing, I'm going to get another one from the FBI tomorrow. Uh, this is serious shit to cut this out. That's a little cut down from, a, there's other people that are on that call in the original version of the tape that you guys put out, but I want to get it down just to McCarthy. This is serious shit. That's what he says. I mean, he doesn't sound utterly panicked, but he sounds, I mean, I mean, Kevin McCarthy doesn't take on Matt Gates even that often, given his, his aspirations. He can't lose yeah. that vote for speaker, right? That says something, Alexander, tell us about what we learn about McCarthy in this moment and uh, the moments that come thereafter. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a really, really important moment. And I think it either cuts against or at least complicates in an interesting but not exonerating way. Like the public caricature of Kevin McCarthy is a man who's totally unable to distinguish between right and wrong, just sort of an empty vessel of ambition. We see in that moment he actually is is capable of distinguishing between right and wrong. He's not entirely governed by his own ambition. It's just that after that call, we hear in that conversation that he recognizes the gravity of the moment. He recognizes that the things that his own members are doing and saying could really put people's lives in danger. 
He just doesn't end up really particularly doing a whole lot about it in the near term, certainly in the long term. One of the people Gates mentions by name in the days after January 6th as part of this sort of anti-Trump cabal that's going to use the moment to seize power in the Republican Party is Liz Cheney, who's on that call right. uh, with Kevin McCarthy and a number of other Republican leaders, including Steve Scalise, the way of Tom Emmer, the head of the uh, Republican campaign committee. This is very, very close to home for Kevin McCarthy. So you do hear in that moment him draw the kind of straight line between loose talk and violent talk and action and danger that you hear these days almost exclusively from the Democratic side. Right, you right. certainly never hear it from Kevin McCarthy about his own members anymore. And you know, you hear it also on that call in that same thing, that, except that we didn't play. It's just Scalise is saying, you know, I think he may have broken the law. And he's talking about Mo Brooks and talking about various other members. Jonathan, this is the thing I want to ask you, because I've heard you talk about it a few times. I want to try to boil it down because there's a very, very complicated thing here. If you listen to all the McCarthy tapes and you read all the things you guys have written in the book, this will not pass. There's a complicated thing McCarthy's doing. All of these calls are not alike. Some of them are to leadership. Some of them are on larger calls. Right. He's also having conversations with Trump. He's characterizing two different groups, his conversations with Trump, not always accurately, it seems, on the basis of your reporting. <laughs> he's he's like, he's putting on a different face. I mean, I agree with Burns that, I will say it on a purely moral level, the fact that you can recognize right from wrong and then choose to do nothing about it is worse in some ways than not being able to tell right from wrong. But whatever you think about that, he has some sense that this is a fucked up situation. But the way he talks to leadership is different than how he talks to the whole caucus. Yeah, and, and different than the way he talks on cable. And different than the way that he talks to Trump. And he talks about what he's saying to each of those constituencies, two different constituencies in different ways. It's all shaded in interesting ways. Now, I know politicians do this, but it's a little bit tricky in this case to disentangle because of the fact that I mean, all the audio comes across as like, well, wow, that's like secret audio. The truth is you can't take even the audio as being perfectly representative of what's really going on in some cases, because he's lying to people either tonally or substantively at different times. So just try to disentangle all of that. He clearly is saying different things to all of his Republican colleagues yeah. that he's actually saying to Trump. And he's clearly I, saying I, different things to Trump yeah. that he said to them he was going to say. So there's a lot to kind of unravel in that. I'm borrowing from Alex here, and I can't remember where he said this, but McCarthy's imperative is surviving the next 15 minutes <laughs> in this situation. So whatever given moment and given audience he's just trying to get through. And by the way, I think that applies to today just as much as it, as it does in the aftermath of January 6th. I mean, this is sort of McCarthy's brain, which is tell the folks in front of you some version of what either they want to hear or what is sort of passable in the moment and survive to live another day. And so, yeah, John, that's a really acute observation that like McCarthy is with people he thinks want to hear tough talk about Trump, giving them tough talk from people who maybe are more mixed. He's sort of like striking a different balance. But obviously, these members know Kevin enough to recognize he wasn't calling Donald Trump and, and putting his foot down. I, I think you would find very few members in the House GOP conference who actually believe that Kevin McCarthy told Donald Trump off. And we asked Donald Trump this very question when we were at Mar-a-Lago for an interview for the book, John, in, in April of 21, a few months after Trump left office. And we said, you know, why does McCarthy go around saying he confronted you on January 6th and really came down on you? And Trump said, it never happened. So we said, well, why is he going around town saying that? And Trump just put a dagger at him. He said, inferiority complex. Trump has no respect for McCarthy, right? Like none. I don't think 
a lot of Trump's relationships are built on mutual respect. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, sure, sure, but like you know, yes, fair enough, fair enough. But I, I, it does feel like he thinks. Yeah, like, but no, he loves the idea of Kevin needing him, him of right, being Kevin right. being a supplicant. Yeah. And obviously, that makes him quite happy. Right. So this brings us to someone, and Jonathan, I want you to tell this story because it was a thing you witnessed, but it's going to come around to the last piece of Republican sound here about another character, an endlessly fascinating and at times, well, often appalling character in his rank hypocrisy and some of his behaviors, Lindsey Graham, the Republican senator from South Carolina. You witnessed the thing on the Capitol. Speaking of like Mitch McConnell says he's exhilarated, you know, and he's focusing on the political potential. I can maybe rid myself of Trump without actually imperiling my own power for a brief shining moment. And then that goes away. Graham is emotional. He's an emotional guy. We know he is. He's emotional in a lot of different settings. He's very emotional on January 6th. But there's a context in which he freaks out that has some interesting connections to a large question, which was how seriously did any Republicans ever consider the 25th Amendment? Some of the tapes go to this where it's more like you can tell it's being talked about because McCarthy never is for it. But on the basis of what Cheney is saying and what some aides are saying, it's clear that it's in the air and Republicans are at least contemplating it. But in a way, it's Graham who first suggests it like in real time, as far as we can tell in this story that you tell in the book on January 6th that you witnessed personally. So In the afternoon of January 6th, the Senate was evacuated to one of the big office buildings across Constitution Avenue from the Capitol. And it's in one of those rooms that Lindsey Graham is sort of moving rapidly around the room. And you can see his mind at work speaking with him. He, too, like McConnell later that night, was sort of gaming out the impact both on Trump, but also on Biden and how Biden could potentially bring the country together. And I think Graham is telling me, you know, this is too far. Trump has finally gone too far. People are not going to respond well to this. But, you know, Graham is also fixated on securing the Capitol and trying to sort of repel the mob that has stormed the Capitol. And he, at one point, bellows at the Capitol police officers who are trying to address the gathered senators and tells them, use any force necessary, take back the Capitol, and is shouted down by Senator Sherrod Brown of Ohio, who says, shut up, Lindsay. So it's quite the moment. And in this same period, John, Trump does a couple of takes on Twitter of these videos telling the mob to go home. And obviously, his heart's not in it. He doesn't want to come down his people because Trump never criticized anybody that actually likes him that strongly. That's sort of his M.O. Graham and the rest of the Republicans see these half-hearted attempts, and Graham takes matters into his own hands and calls Pat Cipollone, the White House counsel, and says, you know, if Trump does not tell these folks to go home, we're going to be calling for the 25th Amendment. And that tells you how serious the Republicans were, at least in the hours that day of January 6th, of trying to force Trump's hand. And it was really coming down on Trump. So now I want to ask this question of both of you guys in our ping pong match here. We'll go back to Burns. Because I always think Lindsey Graham is representative of a thing that I, it's a big debate. We know the whole history, right? He was, for anybody who can't remember, he's incredibly anti-Trump in the 2016 campaign when he was running for president. He then becomes slavishly devoted to Trump and a supplicant of the highest magnitude. He then, on January 6th, is one of the people who went on the floor that night and gave the speech. It was basically, I washed my hands of him, it's over. And then he's back on Trump's side uh, a little later. Now, that history, I could go through, like, we'd spend 10 minutes giving examples of how florid and gratuitous and sort of like eye-poppingly appalling that behavior was. And it's just inconsistent. And you're like, this is a person with no core, no principles. Principles, whatever. Okay, put all that aside. You guys basically think and have said 
something that a lot of people think and have said. Republicans don't really like Trump. He Sometimes they like that he advanced their interests on certain things they wanted to get done. But the main thing that they're scared of is Trump as a vehicle for their voters. They'd say Trump is the only one who's really connected to the Republican base voters. If we cross Trump, we might lose. Alex, do you think that that's true of Lindsey Graham? Because there's something about the depth of it. And is he that vulnerable? Is he really driven just by fear? Or is there something else going on here? I don't mean some conspiracy theory. I mean, just as a psychological thing, his behavior is so extreme in this regard. You know, there are people out there who are like, Trump must have something on him. You hear that from the liberal nuts on Twitter all the time. But what do you think it is? What do you assess what we've seen of Lindsey Graham in this moment and over the course of really last like five, six years and what it says about the state of the current Republican Party? Yeah, I mean, in his case, I think it's clearly been politically useful to him that Trump is his enthusiastic supporter, you know, when he ran for re-election in 2020. Yeah. But I don't think it's a relationship that's entirely driven by fear. He's not one of these sort of backbencher House members who feels like if I don't have Trump squarely in my corner or at least uh, neutral towards me, then I'm screwed and I can't do anything. Lindsey Graham is driven by a desire for a relevance and for a desire to be sort of in the action all the time. And he got that in spades when Trump was president. You know, this is something that I think is just sort of underplayed generally as a factor in the Republican Party's embrace of Trump during his presidency is that, you know, these guys, many of them, Kevin McCarthy is one of them, had never been as close to a president of the United States as they were to Donald Trump. And they had never had the influence in the White House that they did when Trump was president. And Lindsey Graham gets to go in a Clinton administration. He's maybe somebody who talks to the president from time to time about national security. In a Trump administration, he can tell himself that he's sort of the architect of the relationship between the president and the Senate GOP and much of the wider world. That's an extraordinary opportunity for somebody who sees politics and his role in politics the way Lindsey Graham does. John, I do think that one of the big sort of what ifs of the last 16 months is, you know, what if Graham and Biden still had the friendship yeah. that they had yeah. back in the day, right? That if, yeah. you know, that relationship totally broke down during the 2020 campaign when Graham went after Biden's son, Hunter. But if Graham saw a different path to relevance other than continuing to suck up to Donald Trump, would he have taken it? I don't know what the answer to that is, but the reality is the path didn't exist. Yes, and it's certainly a hard path to walk for a person who the other night Alexander Burns called a dancing monkey on the. Just on, to be on, clear, just to be clear, I was referring to his behavior in the moment yeah, fair, as a dancing fair, monkey. Fair not enough. He, like he, adopted, he adopted all of the ticks and, and the metier of a dancing monkey, although he's not actually a dancing monkey. Fair enough. Metier. Thank you for the distinction. I would like you, Jay Mart, to set this up, this clip I want to play. So you guys are at Mar a Lago doing your Trump interview. This is a one of the many quintessences of Lindsey Graham bowing and scraping before Trump. You guys are doing an interview with Trump. What's the date of the interview that this took place when you were actually sitting with him? It's April of 21. April of 21. And you guys are doing this interview. What comes up? I'm going to play Trump getting Graham on the phone. Yeah. What leads up to this? What's the thing that makes Trump suddenly say, I want to call Lindsey Graham? Set it up and then I'll play the audio. It's actually not Trump who calls Lindsey Graham. Lindsey Graham calls Trump in the middle of the interview. Oh, okay. And Trump's phone rings once and he screams the call. He doesn't take it. Like 30 seconds later, his phone rings again. And he's like, all right, I'll take the call. It's Lindsey Graham. And rather than asking us to step aside or stepping away himself to take the call, uh, he puts it on speaker and he puts it on speaker without telling Senator Graham uh, that he's with two reporters who he's allowing to listen in on this. Eventually, he does sort of clue Graham into that fact. And that's when he decides to make a very specific performative request to the senator. Awesome. Let's play. Uh, let's play that. Would you tell them one thing? Can Trump play golf? Legitimately play golf? Okay. So, listen. I thought it was all. So we go play 
for the first time. You know, I've heard this, I've heard that. So we play in October, it's kind of rainy. He shot even far, and this is a three-footer because I made it put. Yes. He would have been one under. But even far, playing by the rules of the gun. After that, we started helping with my game. He's a legitimate five, six, maybe more. You do. If you don't believe it, go play with him. That was the what you call the dancing monkey routine, right? Well, and uh, I appreciate you bleeping that at the beginning since this is a family program. But what he says at the start of the answer is, you know, listen, I, I thought it was all bullshit, too. Uh, but then I actually played with the guy and just gives this sort of glowing over the top testimonial about Trump's golf game. It was really a, a sort of striking moment for you know somebody who I think we both see as a, a serious person in our government willingly putting on this act in front of a former president. Do either one of you guys think that Trump's like legitimately a, a scratch golfer? I mean, I think Trump's probably a better golfer than like the average retiree in his mid seventies who not, plays not, golf consistently. Not my, not my question. I, I I don't think that like Trump's a scratch golfer. No, um, I would like to see video footage of his hole in one recently. I I would really enjoy seeing that that Trump has been talking about so much. What's striking because we talked talk about this with Kevin McCarthy yeah. too is just how much Trump relishes staging those kind of performances to whether it's. Lindsey Graham with us or Kevin McCarthy, you know, for all the world to see here the last few weeks, showing to reporters that he has these guys on a string. It just gives him so much, so much pleasure. And it just affirms his control of the party. What's also interesting, John, later that day, we talked to Graham uh, ourselves when Trump was not in the room. And of course, Graham was talking very differently about Trump saying, yeah, Trump's great to talk to as long as the topic's about himself. We are going to take one more break and we'll be back with more of Alexander Burns and Jonathan Martin here on Hell and High Water. And we are back with the esteemed Mr. Martin and Mr. Burns on Hell and High Water. I do want to turn now to the Democratic side of the aisle and really focus on on Joe Biden and where he is right now, his political standing as we head into these all important 2022 midterms. I think everyone, you guys, agrees that the central political fact of our lives, justifiably or not justifiably, I would say justifiably, people care a lot about rising prices. That factor is inflation. It's the thing that every pollster in America hears from people. And you hear if you travel around the country, people are just worried about the fact that everything is fucking more expensive. And and the problem with rising inflation is that eventually someone tries to do something about it. That's what the Federal Reserve does. When inflation gets out of control, the Fed steps in and then they raise interest rates. And all of a sudden, everybody's mortgages are more expensive and it has an impact on on the housing market. And last week, the Federal Reserve raised interest rates by half a percentage point. They haven't done that in a long time. Biggest jump in 22 years to try to tame inflation. I want to play just a little bit of Fed Chair Jerome Powell's press conference last week announcing that rate hike and the explanation for why the Fed was taking that step now. Inflation is much too high, and we understand the hardship it is causing, and we're moving expeditiously to bring it back down. We have both the tools we need and the resolve that it will take to restore price stability on behalf of American families and businesses. The economy and the country have been through a lot over the past two years and have proved resilient. It is essential that we bring inflation down if we are to have a sustained period of strong labor market conditions that benefit all. 
you know, you guys had a piece in the Times that laid out all the John Anzalone stuff, basically the Biden pollster who has basically been ringing the alarm bell about the weakening of Biden's political standing in general and specifically tied to things like inflation and the arc of that, which is a big arc of the year, basically the little year plus that Joe Biden's mm-hmm. been in office. Just lay that out. Like what news and what new insight do you bring to understanding why Joe Biden's position is despite a bunch of variables that you would say, you know, job growth is great. Income growth is great. COVID is kind of maybe under control. You know, he's led the, you could argue, the, the allied forces against, uh, as, as aiding Ukraine against Russia in a way that a lot of world leaders respect. And yet he's like in a terrible position politically. You know, tell that story of how he got there and what the White House thinks about it and what they think they might be able to do about it. So, John, I mean, I think there's a couple important things about these memos. One is that the prevailing, I think, narrative about the Biden White House is that they didn't see it coming on inflation, that they sort of hand waved their way through 2021. And now the uh, political chickens have come home to roost. And what these memos show is that there was at least one really important voice close to the president who very much did see it coming and said so on paper and circulated that paper to a lot of people close to Joe Biden. Same deal with immigration, same deal with crime. You know, the pollster who led Biden through the 2019 and 2020 campaign was beating this drum all through the first year of presidency, saying we got to take this stuff more seriously. Crime is eclipsing COVID as an issue. Inflation is eclipsing economic growth as an issue, uh, or job growth as an issue. And by the way, voters don't understand what your plans are for taxes and spending. So I think John Anzalone has been proven very, very right, unfortunately, for Joe Biden. And to me, those memos are in the book as a kind of sort of doleful Greek chorus that comes back every month or so to say, you know, even when Biden is riding really high, things are actually not super great for you politically. But I think it sort of demands a sort of deeper answer to the question of why didn't Joe Biden listen to this? You know, why were they so absorbed in the idea uh, that he could be LBJ or FDR that they sort of turned their gaze away from all these very, very serious gathering threats to his administration? You know, there's I think there's a good argument, J. Mart, that if you look at 2020, the history will say Joe Biden won because he wasn't Donald Trump because COVID was fucked and Trump was unpopular in a lot of ways and Biden didn't have to campaign very much. But he also found in the key parts And these go to some of these things we're talking about here. He didn't let Trump on culture stuff. You know, Kenosha comes along. He gives the speech. He had a really good ear for not. He was not defund the police. He found that way to rebuff what could have been an opening for Trump on crime. He was good on immigration. He didn't let Trump get a handle on that in the campaign. You know, if you go back and look at it at the key moments when Trump could have really like cut a big seam that would have allowed Trump to, I would say, win, given how close it turned out to be in some key states. Biden found the right tone. He wasn't a great performer, but he found the right place to be. Why do you think he's lost that now? Or no, A, do you think question. he A, do you think he's lost it? And if he's lost it, because it, Anzalone's d- data suggests he's lost it. If he's lost it, why? How do you lose that in the course of one year? It's not like, oh, Biden has lost his fastball between 20 and 2021. It doesn't make sense. I think he saw an opportunity after his early success getting the ARP, the, the COVID relief bill passed, to be a big figure. And frankly, to be a bigger figure than Barack Obama in a lot of ways, which means a lot to Joe Biden. John, you know better than anybody this. There is a real rivalry there. And I think Biden has never gotten over how he was treated by the West Wing when he was vice president and sort of fell in love with the idea of being a big historic figure, one potentially even bigger than the man 
who made him vice president. Look, it wasn't for a lack of trying. There's definitely voices, including Johnny Anzalone, in and just outside the White House who were trying to get Biden to give what I would call the sort of White House version of the Pittsburgh speech that Biden gave in the fall of 2020. Yeah. Right around Labor Day, Biden goes to Pittsburgh and basically says, do I look like a socialist to you? Yeah. And I think that's one of the most powerful speeches in his campaign. Right after, right after quite, the Republican convention, I think, right? It's right after the Republican convention, right uh, in the wake of Kenosha, you know, like that next Monday or Tuesday. It's not quite sister soldier, but it's his way of Wait, saying, I am safe for suburban consumption, right. and you can trust me. They take clips from that ad, and they put them on the air almost immediately. And no, Biden has not given that kind of a speech or made that kind of a pivot during his presidency. You know, I think the crime a little bit, he's tried to say, fund the police. and But it's, just, it's not sustained, and it's not as monumental as that moment was in Pittsburgh in September of 2020. It's interesting you mentioned the, the Obama-Biden thing. I have heard from a million people in the course of the last year that you know Biden has this aspiration to be a bigger, more consequential historical figure than Obama. I think that's been reported publicly in a bunch of places. The thing I think that's new in your book that I had not read anyplace else, and if I remember this right from the book, you sort of suggest that it goes both ways. It's not just that Biden... He's fueled by that, but that Obama is bothered by that possibility, yes. at least at one point in time, maybe not so much now, given Biden's <laughs> political troubles, but at least at one point in time that Obama is actually it's actually under his skin a little bit. Is that right? Yeah, it is. This is, again, right after Biden's inaugurated passes the American Rescue Plan. And it's both the rapid passage of coronavirus and economic relief bill that is, you know, orders of magnitude larger than Obama's stimulus in his first months as president. But it's also the accompanying wave of commentary around it from Democratic politicians, from a sort of centrist and center left and progressive columnists and commentators saying, finally, here's a Democratic president who understands power and understands Washington and isn't going to mess around with sort of half measures and uh, wasting their time negotiating with uh, Joe Lieberman and Susan Collins. Joe Biden's just going to get it done. Right. And it's during this period, you know, Obama's called up folks that he knows in Washington and elsewhere and saying, you got to understand, it was a really different time back then. The Democratic Party was more conservative. Washington was more conservative. Right. You know, the most conservative Democrat that I had to deal with uh, was so much more conservative even than Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema. You know, obviously now the shoe is somewhat on the other foot, right? That if Biden early on looked like there was huge hope invested in him by his party and, you know, by Biden himself that he was going to be able to do what no other Democratic president had done, which is deliver, you know, a robust, roaring recovery and tangible new social benefits provided by the government to the American people and break this political deadlock that we've been stuck in for some time. And, yeah. you know, a year and change later, that has obviously not happened. I try to like to be really simple about things in some cases. You know, like the Biden campaign has a certain kind of genius to it, right? Do you guys agree with me that Biden's the only Democrat who would have beaten Trump? I mean, given the way that things unfolded, maybe not the only one. We could play out some scenarios about Steve Bullock or something, but of the potential, given the way it played out, given the coalition Biden put together and how you had to win, it turned out, given how strong Trump was in 2020, that Biden was, of the plausible nominees, was maybe the only, maybe at least the only Democrat who could have won in 2020. Fair? I don't know if I would say the only one who could have won, but I think, you know, the, the assessment that Democratic voters made that he was the safest bet, I think clearly was wise. Was OK, yeah. so fair enough. Right. So they had a theory of the case, which was don't get dragged to the left in 2020. They were looking like they were dead on various occasions by fighting what was the trend towards the progressive direction of the party. So that's a very basic kind of simple thing. Like we're going to stick to our guns here. We're not going to get dragged to the left and maybe it'll kill us. But if we survive, we'll be in the best possible position to win. You then get into the White House. 
and you say, I'm going to be the next FDR. And somebody says, you know, your margins in the House and Senate are really narrow. Like FDR didn't have like a five vote margin in the House and a no vote margin, a, a tiebreaker margin in the Senate. How are you going to pass FDR scale stuff with those margins? I, I don't think you have to be very smart or a great political seer or sage to be able to, to say that. And it's not like they were politically stupid a year earlier. They saw some very big things. How did they miss that, J-Mart? Like, how do you miss that like, you weren't going to be able to remake the entire social compact on those margins. I think you get caught up in your early success. You get caught up. We've already mentioned the ARP, the American Rescue Plan. I think you also get caught up in this sense of relief that your party had, that A, Trump was gone, and that B, you know, COVID seemed to be coming under some level of control. And maybe good times are here again. I think if you're talking about March, April, May of 2021, I think that's sort of the thought process at that point. And for Biden, the clips are coming in, that he's going to be this, you know, big historic figure. I think it it sort of goes to his head. Biden's never been ideologically anchored. And I think Biden in a post midterm world where Republicans have majorities in both chambers, I think Biden will work to flatter them, try to cut some deals. Right. It'll be difficult, but I think he'll, he'll, he'll gamely do it. And I think Biden similarly was just as comfortable trying to do a big sweeping liberal agenda when he saw that as the opportunity he had in the moment. So look, I just think that they got caught up in their early success and caught up in the possibility that the end of COVID, the defeat of Trump could lead to sort of this opportunity that would bring everybody in the party along, even people like Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema. And of course, that was just not the case. And by the way, they should have known, John, to your point, we have reporting in the book really early in 2021, where Sinema is telling the Biden folks, don't come to Arizona. Like, basically, I don't want you to come. I don't want to be seen with you (laughs) in my state. And like, even like early on, they're like, this person sounds like Mitt Romney talking about corporations and taxes. So they should have been aware of the degree of difficulty just from their interaction with Cinema and Mansion alone. It's hard for people to remember this, including including people in the White House. Uh, But I do think that part of the dynamic here, too, is that they go from winning the presidency but losing seats in the House and not gaining the Senate in November to suddenly on January 5th, they have control of the Senate, even though there's right. no room for error, right? right? And I do think that the swing from yeah. we're not going to be able to do anything to we actually have at least nominally total control yeah. is deeply disorienting for well, a lot of people. And I, I'd suggest one other thing, which is that in the same way that you guys report in This Will Not Pass, about that moment when Republicans thought that it would happen on January 6th might change everything. And there was that moment. It turned out to be very fleeting for Republicans. I think for Democrats in general, it wasn't as fleeting. And as they kept thinking that the world yeah. had changed in a more fundamental way and right. new opportunities were before them, the things that fueled Mitch McConnell in the hours after January 6th, the kind of polar opposite of that was fueling Democrats. Their so, sense of, that, of tectonic change lasted yeah. longer than in the Republican Party. And I think that's part of it all. So, yeah, I, I really want to dive now into kind of, I guess, the future of the Democratic Party, not just where things are right now with the Biden administration, but like where things are headed. And so to, to kick off that conversation, I want to turn not to Joe Biden, but to someone who many Democrats have long seen as a huge player in the future of, of the party. And people became even more convinced that would be the case when she became Joe Biden's vice president. That's Kamala Harris. There are other Democrats who have had some doubts about that. And she's had a rocky, at least in the Beltway culture, she's had a very rocky 
first year and a bit in the administration. And she sort of decided to really seize the moment last week when the Supreme Court leak happened, raising the possibility that Roe v. Wade would be struck down entirely when the court finally puts out its official position this summer. And this is what she did. She did a speech at Emily's List and really, well, this is what she said. If the court overturns Roe v. Wade, it will be a direct assault on freedom, on the fundamental right of self-determination to which all Americans are entitled. How dare they tell a woman what she can do and cannot do with her own body? How dare they? How dare they try to stop her from determining her own future? They worked on this speech over and over. They revised it a bunch of times. It was they seen as a showcase thing for her. I think she's also sincerely, obviously very emotional about this. A lot of people are. Jonathan, when you guys were on Meet the Press, you were like, there's all the stuff about the internal stuff about the vice president's office. I'm not even that interested in it. I'm mostly interested in what you guys think about the thing that you raised that day with Chuck Todd, which was the mood music of Washington right now, which has been the mood music for a while. Is Biden going to run? Yeah. yeah, we don't know the answer, but is he going to run? Is he not going to run? And the open question of that and how it's it, it didn't raise the question of Senator Harris. And I could codify some conventional wisdom, but I'll let you do it because there's a lot of thinking about the people of Washington spend all day and all night thinking about this now in a pretty much constant state of home. No, it's, it's the right? biggest story in politics, but it's like just under the surface, even though like every Democrat thinks and talks about it around the clock. And yeah. It's fascinating. Yeah. It's an open question. Can Joe Biden at 81 run for re-election? Uh, election, he'd be 82 by the time he was sworn in for his second term. There's a lot of Democrats who are skeptical that he will or that he should. And the fact that Biden's numbers are not very good and he's likely to have a tough midterm, you know, obviously compound that skepticism. Once they get beyond the fact that Biden can't or shouldn't run for second term, of course, the conversation turns to who should. And there's obviously uh, real doubts about the vice president's capacity to unify the party and win the general election in 2024. So this is going to be, I think, a fascinating year, John, 2022 and 23, especially. What does Biden say? When does he say it? Look, you know from covering Biden, if the answer is no, and he's not running for re-election, he's not going to want to say that until the moment where he absolutely has to. Right. So, you know, the day after the midterms, my view has been Biden is like, I'm running because there's no point in saying anything other than I'm running. And he may actually believe he is running until at least the day after the midterms. You lose the House maybe lose the Senate, but definitely almost certainly lose the House, maybe not but almost But then, certainly. John, it looks but, like he's being driven from office. Though, well, I, I, yeah. I, I'm not saying it's a great, none of this is a great yeah. look. Not running yeah. for election not going to be a great look no matter where you announce it. But I'm yeah. just saying that's when you start to have to really think about it, right? That day is the day when people are going to at least say, you got to seriously decide, start thinking about this in a different way than the clock a, per, starts ticking. a perfunctory yeah. I'm running again. And, and Burns, what I want to ask you is to tie this into the book because, you know, there's a world in a fictional version of this. Joe Biden and Kamala Harris are very close. And his plan, if he decides not to run, which, again, is plausible in the context of, of a bloodletting, maybe in the midterms or even not, he's like, this is my vice president. She was my selection. She is my close friend. She is the future of the party. And I'm going to do everything that this White House can do to make sure that she's the Democratic nominee and endorse her as thoroughly as you can. Right. No one thinks that's going to happen. Why is that? What is it that the book tells us about the relationship that makes people not thinks she's the natural inheritor of the Biden mantle based on both their relationships and her political strengths and weaknesses. 
Yeah, I mean, I think we document in real detail his choice of her for the vice presidency. And at no point in our reporting on how he made his decision did anybody say to us he believes that she is unambiguously the best person to carry the torch in 2024 if he cannot run. It was all he needs, somebody who has her profile, has her sort of fundraising base and identity to unify the party for like the next three months so that I can win the 2020 election. We'll deal with later, later. Well, later's here now. And what has happened in the intervening years is, you know, not a whole lot in terms of the development of a really tight political bond between the two of them. There's a lot of frustration with the vice president on the part of people close uh, to Joe Biden and occasionally with Biden himself, that she has not sort of owned the political portfolio that they have asked her to take on. And one of the things, John, that I think is really interesting about the audio that you played uh, at the top is that we report in the book that one of the reasons why she has resisted choosing a discrete set of issues to focus her vice presidency on is that she doesn't want to get boxed into talking about just stuff that black voters and women are, you know, issues that are seen as issues for black voters and women and not for everybody. Well, abortion's an issue for everybody, but it's an issue that's particularly important to some people more than others. And it certainly sounds like she's owning that now. I never like to ask me to make predictions or even to speculate. I hate speculation. I never really invite anyone to speculate, but I am going to now say this question, just gut level. J. Mart, does Trump run again? I can argue it either way, depending on the day. I think right now I'm probably more inclined to say he does than doesn't. And Biden? I think if Trump runs, Biden is definitely more inclined to run than not. You know? And burns out your view? Yeah, I totally agree with that. And I think that, you know, the thing that Jonathan said before, that if Biden is not going to run, he's going to wait a long time to say so. I think the same is true of Trump. I think that unfortunately for all of us, we're likely to spend 2023 in a long staring match between these two guys who are not sure if they're going to go again, but neither of them wants to be the first to say no. The funny thing about it is having played that little sound before from Trump talking about Pennsylvania at rally and the J.D. Mandel thing, it would be really fascinating if the two of them ended up the nominee because the Democratic Party basically thinks that Trump is senile and the Republican Party thinks that Biden is senile. I don't think we would ever have a situation where the two nominations of the party would be widely thought to be senile by the coalitions on each other's side. They all hate the other one, but they're basically like two old guys who like right. say a lot of dumb shit all the time and say dumber shit with each passing day. The book. Point of phrase, double down. Uh, you're funny. Um, I love J- it. J- Alexander Burns, Jonathan Burns, the authors of This Will Not Pass, Trump, Biden, and the Battle for America's Future. You can buy it anywhere. It's not just bookstores. It's not just electronic books. It's not just, if there's NFTs, you can buy it with crypto. You can buy it with cash. You can find it on Canal Street down here. There's used versions widely available all over New York City. But don't do that. Buy the new version. Buy the There's a lot version. of signed versions in New York City too. Get this, I've signed a lot of books. I'm so. telling you, everybody's got to buy this book. If you care about politics, and you don't hate the New York Times, then this is a book for you, which is- Or if you do, we just want you to buy the book. Actually, if you like like good books- We don't judge. Hey, Jobs, we think you'll enjoy the book too. Please forgive our New York Times- Any orientation, you're welcome here. You guys are awesome. Thank you for doing this. Thanks, pal. Hell and High Water is a podcast from The Recount. Thanks again to Alexander Burns and Jonathan Martin for being with us. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to Hell and High Water and share us, rate us, review us on whatever app you happen to use to bask in the splendor of the podcast universe. I'm your host and the executive editor of The Recount, John Howman. Grace Weinstein, who you heard earlier, is a co-creator of this podcast, Hell and High Water. Matthew Kaplowitz is our video editor, Pierre Benimé, and Megan Burney engineered the podcast. Margot Gray, she's our assistant producer. Stephanie Stender is our post producer and the one and only the truth, the light, the answer, the question, all of the above, everything you ever wanted an executive producer and more. Marshall Eisen, the man in charge.